Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. On the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, Bet UK is back and even better for educators. New for 2024, Table Talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like minded individuals in the education space, as well as tech user labs, the brilliant new tutorials, and working groups at BET, where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institution's tech from the top education technology experts in the world. Whatever your goal, you'll find it at BET 2024. Educators go free. Get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. In a second, uh, I'm just going to introduce Yasmin, your host for this evening. Just before I do that, um, a big shout out to John Cat. John Cat Education, who sponsor all of our shows at the moment. It's fantastic to work with them once again. Thanks to John Cat for the 20% discount off all books at johncatbookshop.com. Uh, just use the code JCTTR2324 and you can get yourself 20% off. Going to hand over to Yasmin now. Hey Tom, thank you so much. Um, Good evening everybody and welcome to this episode of Teachers Talk Radio. I thought I'd do today's show on children missing from education. I can definitely say as a teacher and as somebody responsible and uh, um, involved in safeguarding and just, you know, knowing so many teachers, I know that a big topic of conversation in a lot of inset days this year and generally across education has been about people attendance. Um, it's all over the news. I saw a Guardian, a Guardian article from earlier this year which said that one in five pupils in England were persistently absent in the past school year. When I did my safeguarding training earlier this year, one of the key changes in the keeping children safe in education was the... Um, distinction between now children absent from education and children missing from education. So I thought it would be a good topic to discuss today. And I've got Bahja who is going to be speaking today. Um, Bahja was a head of year in uh, North London for a very long time. 
um, and, and I'm sure Bahad will tell you more herself about the demographic and you know the kind of context and area in which she was working in. But I think every teacher knows at least something about what inner city London's like, and um, you know the context and challenges if that you know is. I wouldn't say unique to this area, but, you know, exists in this area. So, um, yeah, Bahja, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I just wanted to ask if you could first talk about what your pastoral role was and what role you're in now. Hiya. Um, so my pastoral was being um, head of year. So I had um, two cohort in my time. So I had one cohort from like year 10 to year 11 pre-COVID. They were the year 11s of 2020. And then I had uh, one cohort from 9 to 11 who've just been, who finished this August um, post-COVID. Um, and I've left my job and now I've left mainstream and I've gone into special educational needs school, um, which has been a difference. Um, so, yeah, so that's been, that's what, that's what I was doing before and that's what I'm doing now. The first thing I actually want to ask you off the back of that, um, because, you know, it's not I wouldn't say it's that common for teachers to leave mainstream and go into like alternative provisions and special schools and stuff. The first thing I kind of want to ask you is, do you off the bat? And I know there's a lot lower numbers in, you know, outside of mainstream. But do you notice a change or a difference in attendance rates when you compare mainstream and AP? Oh, um, in short for alternative provision for anyone that isn't aware. Attendance is a lot worse in alternative provision. I think with the type of students um, we have and the kind of struggles they have uh, within whether it's their needs, their trauma or outside of school influences, you get a lot more of school refusers or you get a lot more students who are unable to come in because of um, their trauma and their needs. So attendance is a lot worse. Um just because of the type of kids you've got at those kind of provisions. But, you know, I really want to explore that because um, it wasn't until I joined my PRU, the people referral unit that I'm in, just over a year ago, that I actually found out that I think the national attendance um, in AP is at about 50% at best. So, like, children are basically missing half of their schooling or, like, they, they miss about half the days in a school year on average and like I couldn't believe that because in mainstream it's way high like significantly higher and like you know that is something that's always kind of played in the back of my mind as to you know why is that the case and I know you just touched on it there but you know I mean I, I've definitely got my theories as to why I think it's like that but is there anything you know since you've transitioned recently is there anything that you think is the big reason as to why some kids have you know 95% attendance let's just say in mainstream and then go down to you know maybe 45 when they join AP do you know I also think the kids currently um the kids that are at my school they would be classified as the kids who um who wouldn't come into school at mainstream so when I was in mainstream my worst attendance students were dealing with whether it was mental health to um, being involved in a wrong kind of crowd and being very vulnerable um, or just not liking school at all. Now, you get these kind of students in um, in alternative provisions. And what I've noticed is students who actually have that kind of struggle, 
who had that struggle when they were in mainstream because their attendance, some of them, their attendance was a lot worse in mainstream because they weren't getting the actual um, support that they that they needed. Uh, so I've noticed that where their attendance was a lot worse in the mainstream school, um, their attendance is not that much better, but it is a significant difference when they went to um, an alternative provision school. I don't know if it was like that um, for your school. Yeah, um, yeah, like I, I'm not gonna lie. I feel like I mean, there's some stories I wanted to share today. Obviously, you know, con considering safeguarding and stuff, obviously, I'm not gonna like say anything that can like identify people or anything. But one thing I've noticed is um, when children are excluded, I feel like, and you know, I'm not like, I feel like I always make this clear because when people here that I work in the Peru they automatically think that I'm like entirely against exclusions which I'm not like I definitely know that some exclusions have to happen and I do think that um you know schools are always kind of weighing the safety of um weighing up the safety of an individual child against everyone else and therefore there are many times that you know exclusions are necessary so I wouldn't say that I'm against them but one thing I definitely know from even before I was a teacher and now even more so that I'm in a prove is how it is the shift in like a child's confidence when they're excluded like I, I feel like a permanent exclusion is a huge form of rejection and there are you know irrespective of whether or not a child you know deserved it or did something to kind of earn that exclusion one of the consequences is that you know they're um, self-confidence and self-esteem massively plummets because it is a really big rejection for a school to basically turn around and say look you can't go here anymore and um, I feel like that vulnerability does really impact children and can sometimes make them like vulnerable to kind of looking for a sense of belonging and because you know like I, I feel like it's actually quite sad that when people go into alternative provisions, say like a prove after they've been permanently excluded, it is worth noting that a lot of the time they're now in a borough with many of the other, you know, quote unquote, naughtiest or worst behaved children or most challenging children, whatever you want to call it, you know, everyone says something different. And I feel like because a lot of children want to then fit in or they're looking for a sense of belonging, become quite vulnerable to a lot of essentially quite bad things that they might not have done or might not have been exposed to had they still been in mainstream and that's not saying that they should still stay in mainstream but I do feel like it plays a really big hand if that makes sense Bahja. Yeah I completely agree I think um, see I I have a hit and miss with with Prue's because sometimes when a child is about to get permanently excluded or get even put into a proof for a short term I feel like they're gonna some there's some students who are gonna get worse because they they're like, well you don't want me here, um, what's the point anymore? No other school, and especially when they're older. So a lot of the time, the likelihood of a year ten who's been um, permanently excluded to get back into mainstream or have a chance of going back to another mainstream school is very very low. So they they're kind of like, well nobody wants me. What is the point of this? And it's it's hard enough to convince them in. Um, mainstream that actually you need to care about your GCSEs or we need to get you some qualifications when they're in a pro it's like well no one cares about me uh, I'm just going to be the worst of the worst um, other alternative provisions to so the school that I'm currently at um, it's 
is for students with, with specifically EHCPs and our school focuses on um, the SEMH, so social, emotional and mental health. So those will be students who might, might have been sent to a PRU and some students did come from a PRU, um, but because of their needs of DHCP, they're able to come into our school and our school is a more of a holistic approach. And I think the work that the school has been doing with the students, and I've only been there since May, um, has helped. There's been a massive change with a lot of them. So instead of having that mindset of, um, I feel excluded, um, nobody wants me, they have that thought of actually I can achieve something and I just need extra support in a different way. So I think Prus people who work at Prus, I just give I I give a massive applaud because some some Prus work really really hard in trying to turn around these students and trying to change their mindset of that you are you are wanted, um, you should you do belong and you do you can actually turn it around. It's not it's not actually it's never too late. So yeah, so did I? No, honestly, I do. I completely hear what you're saying there, Badger. And actually, SEMH, like, I feel like that's an area that, um, you know, myself and I. Did I? Did I just cut out there? I don't know. You just happened. cut out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, guys. I'm not sure what happened there. Um, but yeah, I was just gonna say that I feel like um, SEMH is an area that you know I. Sounds like your Wi-Fi oh, gosh. is dropping. Let me a just bit. <laughs> switch to mobile network. Okay, that should be better now. Sorry, guys. So sorry. Um, can you hear me clearly now? Okay, yeah. great. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, SEMH Bahja, I think is an area we need to know a lot more about. So could you just tell us a little bit about what SEMH is? Because I personally feel like that's a massive contributing factor to attendance rates plummeting. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot to be said about um, mental health. And I think that um, the fact that it's so difficult for children to now get referral, well, not the referring part, but to actually be seen by specialists has worsened a lot of behavior in schools it's put teachers in tougher positions and schools in general and other pupils and the pupils that are suffering themselves and could you talk to us a little bit about what do you do then if you know someone's got you know SEMH needs what do you do now as someone who's in one of those specialist schools that's different say that might not happen in mainstream I think a lot of the time is um, we get a lot of training on understanding the cognitive loads and the way a some of the students' brains might work. So a lot of the time we are looking at um, how much information can it take in and sometimes when they are in a, um, we call it dysregulated, which means they are very emotional, they're having outbursts, they're not ready to be learning and we do things with so one of the work with children is actually trying to understand their emotions they're feeling and a lot of it is through zones of regulation so a lot of the time students might not be able to say i'm tired um i'm angry i'm happy i feel sad i feel silly so zones of regulation are specific colors so i would say what zone you are so for example if they're happy they'll be in a green zone um if they are in a blue zone it can mean they're tired um they're sad um they're uh first, well tired sad and other feelings so 
they'll look at the list and they'll be able to state what feelings there are. Um, if they are in a red zone, that means they're angry um, or anxious. So using those colors help them understand what feelings they might be feeling and help us help them. So that's something that's very different to uh, mainstream because we don't have the time to do that in mainstream when you've got a class of 30. Um, another thing is, is lessons are a lot shorter, 45 minutes. And in between lessons, we have things called brain breaks. On site, there is a counselor. Um, there are, um, each class have got TAs. Some students have got a one-on-one. -on -one, uh, and we've also got mentors. So everything is there so that the students are able to get the support they need as well as get the skills that they need so if the maths and english the science food tech all of these subjects are now able to learn so that's a complete different to a mainstream it's more of a holistic approach even when they have outbursts let's say they have a bad behavior we have this place called a create space which isn't um it's not even an exclusion room so they spend a bit of time in a create space where there's a mentor that works with them one-on-one -on -one and talks about how their behavior and their feelings led to this. And then once they've understood, they go back into classes. Um, and it's a lot, it's a lot, I would say it's just a lot more targeted around understanding the reason for the behavior um, and then working with the child. Whereas the mainstream, you'd give them, probably like send them out, um, then they'll get excluded then they're in isolation, seclusion, and then it gets further up. And then maybe at some point they might go, they might get a referral to inclusion. And then there is a long waiting list with everything. And by the time the child, we realize that the child might have some kind of needs, they might have been permanently excluded. See, I'm going to be a little bit of a devil's advocate here and just kind of ask then, does that then, if a child can have their needs met in a smaller provision, um, does that then mean that schools, well, not all schools are kind of fit for purpose? Like, would you say then that mainstream maybe sets up some children with needs to fail if, um, you know, if they can go on to be perfectly fine when they're in a, another school? Like, is it fair that it's just the numbers, you know, it basically, like, I know what you're saying, as in because I'm in AP myself, like obviously one of the biggest advantages I have that I never had in mainstream is having far smaller class sizes and therefore it's so much more manageable to like really focus on an individual but like would you then say the fact that mainstream doesn't do that? Um, I think so definitely and I think post lockdown what schools and the government should have done is uh, put more more emphasis on the inclusion part of the school because back in my mainstream school there was um there was one counselor potentially for thousands of children and um then there might have been a few tas because the tas all got cut back um there was no kind of extra support in terms of the mental health or the needs of the students so that meant that the teachers a lot were left on their own to deal with everything and um, where you've got a class of 30 and no extra support and not the time to sort of fully understand what's going on with the children. As a teacher, you feel like you are failing them, um, but you can't fully do what you need to do without any extra support. Um, so, go on. yeah. Oh, sorry, Bahja, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, and I've got kind of another kind of 
And another question, if I kind of flip it the other way, yeah. and do you think then it could also be said, you know, just hearing what you're saying there, obviously that really resonates. I know that a lot of teachers can really relate to that feeling of, you know, being completely helpless in a class of 30 where you've got children with needs, but there's absolutely nothing you could do because of the other children that are there. Um, would you then say that maybe other statutory services have really failed schools because um, it's left teachers and just staff in general in, in a position where they have to deal with needs that they might not necessarily be qualified for or never really get training for in initial teacher training like when I was training for as a teacher for example I don't think I ever was trained in SEMH and I still think a lot of teachers don't actually understand what it is like could you say then also that schools have been failed oh I would say a hundred percent all the all the it's like I admit it felt like it's particularly I felt it a lot last year it was like a blame game it was um, the school was struggling, asking for help. The external services would say, well, you're not doing enough of this and we can't do this. You guys need to do this. And it was just like a kind of blame game and the child was just left in the middle. Um, and I think some external services and also local authorities need to be looking into at what they should be spending what little money they have or what they should be exploring or working with teachers instead of just dumping it all on teachers and basically telling us to just get on with it um that's why it feels like at the minute to just get on with it there's nothing else we can do yeah which is insane because i think that is what all teachers essentially do like i feel like everyone does get on with it i'll just tell you guys a really quick story um when i joined my pru in september last year for anyone who doesn't know pru is short for pupil referral unit it's a school for excluded children in a borough in east london um so basically every local authority is responsible for um the education of children up until about 16 and so if you find yourself permanently excluded from mainstream um anytime you are 16 or below what happens is the local authority not the one where your school is based in that, that you're excluded from but one based on your postcode your local authority will essentially be responsible for putting you into a school so I'm in one of those schools for excluded children so all of the children in our school have either been permanently excluded or they're on like a placement like you know those placements where that are designed to kind of um I, sh I shouldn't say scare you, but essentially when a school is saying, look, you're at risk of exclusion and we're now going to send you here where you can have more specialist support. Or we're going to see if it helps. So I'm in one of those schools. And I remember one of the first kids I met last year. Um, he's actually in year 10 now. But last year at the start of year nine, so in September, um, one day I was just teaching him in a lesson when he got up out of his seat. And I'm not even joking. He ran across the classroom, jumped up onto this counter, quickly looked out the window and then ran back to his seat and just kind of shook his head as if you like you know like as if you're like kind of shaking something off and then he just went <laughs> he just went oh I'm really sorry miss um that wasn't me that was my alter ego and I was like stood in front of him thinking what the hell just happened like I'd never like it just was not I was just presented with like a completely new behavior in a lesson that I'd never seen before you know I had no real script for it in my head so I kind of just laughed and I was like what do you mean that was your alter ego like tell me more about that I'm you know quite curious and he basically was like I'm really really good but I have an alter ego and when I do bad things at school it's not me it's my alter ego and honestly like I remember finding it so hilarious and I didn't even hide the fact that I found it hilarious and 
one of my behavior management strategies for him moving forward was because like if I told him look these are the rules or these are the expectations he would say he he's listened and he's understood but then whenever he breaks them or does something that he's not meant to do he would basically completely absolve himself of responsibility and say that it's his alter ego so what I started to do after that to try to combat that was whenever because I do like greetings at the door anyway when people's arrive when I go to the door and I'd see him arriving at my lesson I'd always ask him let's just say his name is A and his alter ego is B by the way he actually had a name for his alter ego so let's just say it's B obviously I can't say what his name is um you know I'd always asking ask him at the door am I talking to A today or am I talking to B and you know he would find it quite funny as well and he would either say oh it's A like it's me as in that you know him or he'd say oh you're talking to my alter ego and so I would know from as soon as he arrived at my lesson what kind of mood he was in or what kind of behaviors I might expect to see and it actually helped me completely eliminate them like when when I would be talking to him sometimes I would actually just refer to his alter ego and be like um you know you're not meant to do that that's not something I'm going to accept etc and um he would then respond and be like um yeah you know my alter ego understands what you've just said and like honestly I know I shouldn't I shouldn't be laughing but like it was just something I'd never been presented with, never had training for, had no idea how to cope with, obviously reported it to the Senko. Um, it was referred, you know, and then all that came of it was he was added to like a CAMS register, you know, waiting list. And so it's like, you know, as a classroom teacher, you get no support sometimes for extremely challenging behaviour and you're essentially expected to cope with it. But what I found, and I wanted to ask you, Bahja, um, do you have any stories of like behaviours that you've seen that are related to SEMH that you maybe never saw in mainstream or you saw was dealt with completely differently in the specialist school that you're in now? So there's an, I'd give an example. There's one particular girl um, that was in my year during um, in my mainstream school. Um, Pre-lockdown, she was in year eight. And if I were to say this girl was, she would work hard. She was the helper. She was a bit of a tomboy. Um, she'd be the student that you will sit the difficult, um, a difficult boy who struggles with lessons, and she would just work with them. Um, Post lockdown, she when she going to year nine, and when I picked her up, I referred her to inclusion within three weeks of in September, because. Um, she couldn't stay in the class for too long. The moment she just had to leave the class, um, she'd last about, I would say, 10 minutes of the lesson. Um, and then she would have, she would just bolt out. And a lot of the time, um, she she would have sensory, I would describe as sensory overload. Later on, um, she had panic attacks. And then it got progressively worse. And when she was having, um, I would call it her moments, she wouldn't be able to communicate with anyone. Now, when you have a student who's like that high profile, her behavior started slipping. And then when she's had one of the moments, she'll bump into somebody from SLT. She wouldn't be able to communicate with them. Then all of a sudden, if so-and-so is rude, then she would have a burst. Um, she'll burst out, get angry, say a bunch of words, and all of a sudden I have to do paperwork to put her in exclusion, even though there was a clear explanation now later on um she 
I, I pushed, I think I pushed for so many times that I need her to be assessed. There's something going on. It's not just her behavior. Now, had she been in the school that I'm currently at, when she when she'd be struggling in a class she'd be able to take a break outside a brain break so she'd be able to go for a walk she'd be able to go for fresh air and then come back because that's all she needed but in mainstream um she can't you don't have the facilities to go for a walk and then come back um because there might be uh, something going on in the corridor you need to stay in the lesson you need to work um you um, teachers have got set rules, school have got set rules, there should be no children in the corridors, children should be going to toilet um, in between lessons, they need to stay in lessons and need to be learning and that didn't work for her. Um, later on, I think we, I pushed through an EHCP uh, and she ended up in this alternative provision which wasn't that great. Um, I thought I was told that it was going to be more like the school that I work at, but it turned out it was the opposite. And that's a whole different story. Um, but like, if she were at my current school, um, she would have, I feel like, would have been a lot happier and would have achieved better than she achieved. She, I would say within the circumstances, she'd done quite well for end of year 11. And uh caught up with her. Actually, I bumped into her recently and she's really enjoying college. Uh, but had she been in this kind of provision, I think her secondary school life would have been a lot better and she would have enjoyed school a lot more. Thanks, Bahja. And um, I just want to say as well, I really want to encourage anyone in the audience that's listening to um, contribute. If you've got any kind of stories that you want to share about a student who maybe really struggled in mainstream and did a lot better in alternative provision or vice versa, or any kind of story you want to share about a pupil who maybe stopped attending school, um, you know, school refuses, there are so many different things. Please feel free to jump in at any point. You're more than welcome to request the mic and let us know. Um, but yeah, Bahja, like, I don't know if you, you're aware or if anyone in the audience is aware, but did you know that there are actually schools that exist for school refusers? So it's a type of specialist unit, which I believe is completely voluntary. And it's for children that have essentially, who don't feel like they can go to mainstream and they can essentially choose to enroll themselves in these special schools called, um, uh, they're essentially just called um, therapeutic schools for school refusers. I didn't actually know about this, but one of my former school teachers who, looking back, isn't actually even that much older than me. I was his first class when I was in A-level. I was his first class um, when he was in NQT, had just qualified essentially as a teacher and um, he taught me when I was at school and he's now a head teacher at one of these sc schools for school refusers and I mean I don't really like the phrase school refuser I feel like it almost sounds quite stigmatized I don't know what you think about that Bahja but you know I feel like when somebody I mean I can imagine there are children who don't want to go to school um, and don't necessarily have any reason. But I think a lot of the time there are children that have underlying mental health um, conditions or, you know, children who've gone through really severe trauma. I know, for example, there are a lot of children now in schools who have come from war zones. I think it's always been the case, but I think the numbers now are actually quite high. And, um, you know, I think a lot of them 
have trauma or don't like to be separated from their parents or their families because of the things that they've seen and um you know so I, I don't I think there could be a better phrase than school refuser I don't know what you think about that Badger um I actually know about this because one of my um students in my year group um actually attended one of those schools um she was an Indian admission in year 10 and I actually only met her, I will say, three times between year 10, year 11, before the exams. Um, and it's hard, like, the term school refuses. She wanted to come into school, um, but she couldn't um, because of her anxieties, her mental health. She just couldn't leave the house. And again, I'm going to keep saying lockdown, but it's something that came back from lockdown where she'd been pretty much home for most of year eight and year nine then all of a sudden coming into a school in year 10 um she couldn't it wasn't she just couldn't come into school um and the the schools the school that she went to um the let's call it school refuser school um they helped her with a lot we sent um she they had all of the details. They got her a tutor. Sometimes the tutor will be online or she'll go to those, uh, the centre face to face. It was a lot more flexible to her. And she turned up to every single one of her GCSE exam and she passed all of her exams. And at those kind of schools are really important and do really great work. And I'm quite impressed. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. On the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, Bet UK is back and even better for educators. New for 2024, Table Talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like-minded individuals in the education space, as well as Tech User Labs, the brilliant new tutorials and working groups at BET, where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institution's tech from the top education technology experts in the world. Whatever your goal, You'll find it at BET 2024. Educators go free. Get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. No, thank you, Bahja. Um, honestly, it's, it's really nice to hear that. And, you know, I want to ask if anyone in the audience knew any school refusers or 
nose of anyone who just simply didn't want to go to school. Um, you know, COVID is referred to a lot as a time. I never, I never wanted to go to school. Um, <laughs> but I was, so... I was sort of, you know, pushed in that direction by my parents who just sort of got me out of bed, you know, gave me a good old sort of nudge towards the icy cold exterior of the house. Like, <laughs> go and catch the bus, Tom. Could you tell us though, why, why, Tom, did you not want to go to school? Um, just natural sort of not what it was warm in the house. It was cold outside. Um, I knew I'd have to do things in school that I didn't necessarily want to do. Um, i.e., sit and read stuff, look at a board, listen to a teacher, um, learn subjects that I, I wasn't necessarily as interested in as other subjects. Um, and just the cold and the sort of the interactions with other people in the school I was in, there was. You know, you're going back to the sort of 1997 in Birkenhead. It was a, it was a, I was talking about this actually the other day to someone randomly enough. Um, but, you know, some of the stuff that it was quite a hostile environment at times is what I'm saying um, between peers. Um, so, yeah, that's it's all of that, really. And sometimes I just didn't feel like it because I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> so, and not one time did yeah. my parents allow me to sort of, ever not go they were just like no you, you're going um oh you've got the snivels you're going oh you don't want to go you're going <laughs> um oh, you, you know like that that was it there was no like I, in fact i remember one story where i was doing this like after school club that i didn't I'd, I'd said i'll do it and then i went to it and i didn't want to do it desperately didn't want to do it and this was an after school club it wasn't even school um and there was one time i got the bus home which was a solid hour to oh get home from school to my house uh and i walked through the door and my mum was like what are you doing here you're supposed <laughs> to be at the after school club you bet you better get the bus all the way back so i did oh wow <laughs> <laughs> and then i had to walk in to this after school club with 10 minutes left oh so and it was like, it, so it was just like, oh my God. So yeah, so there you go. Yeah, no, that that is, you know what, Tom? I think what you're saying is definitely really common for a lot of children. So do you then hold the view that a lot of children just don't want to go to school because it's just kind of a normal kind of like teenage phase and not necessarily a serious reason? Yeah, I mean, I'm not discounting necessarily. The, 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 of course, that I mean, if you go back to the '90s, there would have been. It was the almost, almost the other extreme. You know, it was where someone who did have a genuine issue or reason may have ended up going to school or having to. You know, I don't know having to engage. Um, but yes, generally, I think that yes, I'm of the view that they're they're. There is a, there is a, I don't know whether it's, there is, um, I think resilience is really important. I think it's something that we have not valued as much now as maybe we should, um, or we don't push it as much in, in a practice. We talk about it a lot. Oh, resilience, resilience, resilience. But when it comes to actually, you've got to do something that you really don't want to do and you're just going to do it. Um, I don't know whether we do that anymore. Um, 
I mean, I can understand. Like, I think, Tom, I can really relate to what you were saying about your parents. Like, I remember um, if I was ever ill, if I had a flu, if I woke up feeling unwell, like there was just an expectation. Um, you know, my mum expected me to go to school. Obviously, you know, there, there yeah. are exceptions. I feel like the one that yeah. always allowed was like, say, if, you know, someone's throwing up, obviously. Oh, not- yeah, of course. I mean, I'm not saying but- like, I've made it no, sound no, like no, my no, parents no. were fascists. Like, they, they were, you know, if I <laughs> had like chicken pox or something, they were like, no, you, you need you can stay at home. Um, yeah. But the point I'm trying to, I don't know, my general point would be, I don't know what, I don't know what your original point is. I don't even know why I'm talking right now. Um, but it was something about, <laughs> it was something about school refusal. And I was just making the point that, you know, yeah, the the reason can just be sometimes that they don't want to go to school because they they it's not an experience that they want to do, and it's not any further than that. It's just they don't want to do it. No, Tom, I you know I know what you're saying, and you know I I've met kids that I would say that is the case for, you know I even had a sibling that was like that and you know I remember the battles with my mum when you know she would be like no you are going to school and you know my sibling would be like well I don't want yeah. to and there was no other reason but um you know I, d- I don't think what you're saying was wrong I was just kind of agreeing yeah. I was, like I remember my mum unless it was like you know serious illness I remember she'd always say look like it, it was just that kind of you know that total faith in school staff of like if you're sick they will send you home or they and obviously they never did <laughs> um you know you'd go to the medical room and you'd get given like a biscuit or like a glass yeah. of water yeah 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 go back to lessons and stuff um but like i i know what you're saying and you know i think the opinion that you hold is a, a common one in all honesty um and you know i feel like it's I'm going to end up jumping across topics now. And if anyone wants to jump in at any point, feel free to. But I think, Tom, it reminds me of the second part of this that I wanted to eventually move on to, which was, um, like, why, you know, not just in edu Twitter, but in education in general, like, why is there such a divide in opinion in, like, say, how schools should run or, you know, the, the things are impacting children? So, like, um, you know, a really good example that I could give is, I spent a lot of last weekend just kind of reading through tweets because there was this massive kind of like debate on the timeline, which was triggered by um, someone, a a consultant posting a video of silent corridors of a secondary school in Hackney. And like, I think I spent the, I mean, I think for the whole weekend, there were, there was a lot of back and forth, you know, people describing uh, comparing you know silent corridors to prison and then on the complete other end you know people saying well you don't understand the context this is what children in deprived boroughs need and you know if there's anyone in the audience who's got anything they want to say honestly you're more than welcome to jump into this but you know I feel like it's a topic worth discussing because how is it that opinion is so divided in education like I feel like I rarely see on Twitter somebody saying oh you know what I see both sides of this argument or I see where you're coming from, but, you know, I would add this or I would consider this. You don't see that. It's, um, you know, two ends of the spectrum. Like, you know, I saw the person who posted that video was getting quite abusive replies where people were saying, you know, I'm going to report you to social services because of silent corridors or, you know, this, this teacher needs their children taken away from them. And then on the complete other end, was kind of more of the same but just with the opposite view and you know what I think Tom I will definitely 
get you to weigh in on your thoughts. But you know what, Bahja, I thought I'd start with asking you, what are your thoughts on silent corridors? Because I know that you would have seen those tweets as well. So do you know what? With silent corridors, I'm in two minds um, because... That's not uh, my answer. No, no, no. I'll justify it. I was, do you know what? I was a harsh head of year, as in... Um, in terms of just going back a little bit on attendance, some to some kids it's like unless you're dying or dead, you need to come into school. Um, that was the vibe that I was on with um, silent corridors. I can understand. Oh, it, it's nice to have a silent corridor. It's um, the kids are going through, but at the same time, kids are not robots. Um, I do think that the reason why people are wanting or are for silent corridors because at the minute. Um, Everybody I speak to, behavior is um, absolutely um, mental at the minute in mainstream schools. I will say mainstream schools because um, the school I'm at, the behavior is actually quite nice. And I think it's because there's a lot less children. But in terms of corridor, I, I think if there is, if everybody follows whatever behavior policy they're at at the school and every member of staff is consistent with it, um, and the SLTs um, do follow through and support staff when they're out and about, as it's supposed to be, um, then the corridors will be safe and orderly. Um, then you wouldn't need children to be completely silent. We shouldn't be um, teaching to be completely silent because in real life, we're not going to go from one office to the other um, in complete silence. Um, when you go on the tube or when you're traveling, it's not going to be... You need to be able to um, socialize and walk like normal human beings in a normal setting uh, without being antisocial. And I feel like when when there's that strict conformity, um, at some point, kids will go absolutely uh, mental somewhere else. Um, so I don't, I personally, I don't agree with the silent corridors, but I can understand why people would want to have the silent corridor. So do you think then that, um, you know, silent corridors or forcing the kids to walk in silence is just kind of making it too easy for staff, essentially, because you're just kind of stripping everything away from the kids? Like, is, is that essentially what you think? Basically, yeah. I think, um, like, we can manage, like, the whole point of them coming to school. The den- Sorry, then might as well have just done online learning. They were silent because they didn't talk when we were teaching them online. Half of them were most likely asleep anyways. Um, the whole point of, you know, changing classes and uh, walking around is part of the social needs of being in a school. They should be able to talk about what they were learning before or they're not allowed to talk in class, have a little conversation on the way to lesson. Um, that's the kind of normal behaviour that you accept, that you expect and students should be able to do that and behave and if we are managing their behavior and modeling their behavior quite well and following the policies then there wouldn't be a problem okay I think, gone oh so no sorry about to finish your point and i was just saying that i think silent corridor is just uh, putting a plaster over it so what would you say then to say um parents or pupils who say that they've been injured in corridors before because pupils take advantage of, you know, that kind of window of time where they're traveling from, you know, one part of the school to another. And, you know, 
hit people or hit each other or just kind of you know demonstrate unsafe behavior like what would you say I think those kind of incidences wouldn't happen if um, members of staff or presence to like uh, my all school like my mainstream school um, we had the one foot in one foot out policy in between uh, lesser changeover so every single member of staff um, could see what was going on in a corridor and you, there is a rotor in which the pastoral team would be in specific corridors during lesson changeover which meant that um, changeover went smoothly now when people weren't doing what they were supposed to do um, my hotspot was the english corridor um nothing nothing against english but um the english corridor was the most dangerous corridor um and that's because in that corridor people weren't doing the consistent one foot in one foot out which meant children um for it'd be a great party to happen during that corridor but if members of staff and if everybody's doing their bit um it'll be a smooth like process and i think when children get um injured it is usually because we weren't we weren't to put we weren't doing our job in terms of being present or having a presence I see what you're saying. Um, I kind of want to explore this idea that um, silent corridors kinds of kind of takes away from children being prepared for, you know, the quote unquote real world. Like, you know, you referred to earlier, um, you know, they wouldn't have to do that if they're walking through a train station. I think you said. Yeah. Uh, um, why is it that you think they're not being prepared for real life? Because a lot of the time people who uh you know kind of promote that kind of zero tolerance and quiet corridors because i read a lot of those tweets um a lot of the time they actually argue the opposite they think that they're preparing children for the you know the wider world in a better way because they think they're promoting things like punctuality orderliness you know being on time following instructions and even though it wouldn't be the same in a workplace there are people that essentially argue that they think it's for the best. What would you say to that? I mean, you can teach punctuality um, and follow instructions by not um, and not having a silent corridor because you can do both because you're expected to get to your lesson on time. And if you don't get to your lesson on time, um, there is a sanction. Um, you follow instructions because you're supposed to go to your next lesson or you're supposed to wear don't know have your blazer or there's a specific routine so you are following that instruction so we are still teaching that um but by it being complete silence it just um nowhere in the world is completely silent like nowhere in there on the bus and i feel like where they're repressed if they're not able to express them in or communicate within the corridor we're not expected to do that in a classroom um then there might be worse behavior in the playground or just after school because they have repressed everything or any kind of emotions or any kind of discussions or anything like that and i feel like that will come out in some kind of way um okay and one of the big arguments that i saw on twitter when i was reading all those tweets last week about silent corridors was that you know um by ensuring the children come into the building in silence and you know file it to, to their lessons and stuff it maximizes learning time to like quote what i saw on twitter um there were you know people saying that it maximizes learning time and you know it improves classroom behavior because it kind of essentially 
facilitates children walking into lessons in silence from the very start and therefore improving or kind of giving teacher a support you know classroom teachers support with behavior management because it's kind of consistently enforced around the whole school so you know what are your thoughts on that do you think that silent corridors helps teachers in the classroom I think yeah silent corridors help would help teachers in the classroom but it wouldn't help um for example a neurodivergent divergent child um a neurotypical child might be able to stay silent um, the entire time I'd be fine, whereas a neurodivergent child um, wouldn't, and then they would get sanctioned, and then they'll get sanctioned, and sanctioned, and sanctioned, and then that child will end up in one of the alternative provisions. So I think, um, in a grand scheme, it's, it's good if you are just focusing on neurotypical because a child can do that. But, and we are seeing a lot of students um, are, I feel like there's a high, higher number of students who are neurodivergent and it kind of goes against of how they, they need to focus in the lesson they are masking in the lesson and trying their best in the lesson and having those little breaks in between in between lesson time or lesson changeover um, might help them to further regulate themselves in the next lesson because they've been masking the entire time yeah. so it helps the it does help the teacher because of course you have an orderly class of year sevens, 30 year sevens coming in nice and quiet in silence, coming to the classroom and they sat in the classroom. Perfect. You can get on and teach. But we're supposed to be teaching in mainstream, we're supposed to be teaching all children. And then you will have maybe two or three kids in your class who actually are struggling and won't be able to learn anything in your lesson or might might behave in some kind of way because they just can't hack this. Are we saying that these children need to go to a special alternative provision and we should only teach um, neurotypical children in mainstream? See, I think it's really interesting you say that, Badger, because I feel like the opinion on, you know, on neurodivergence was really divided actually in that debate you know I felt like there were a lot of people saying that silent corridors you know it's really really good for children that are um, neurodiverse and then there were you know other teachers that were saying well even you now you know saying no actually it's really bad for them and you know they're more likely to end up excluded and so you know I just think it's really interesting isn't it that it's such divided opinion because I've seen both ends of the spectrum in terms of the argument and you know I mean I found I just found that particular aspect of on neurodivergence and like there was a lot on send you know people saying what about children would send on both sides you know some people really in support of silent corridors and some people really against it so you know I feel like it's hard to judge without... I think it's because um yeah you've got some students some neurodivergent children who get easily have sensory overload um and you've got some who um need to have that break where they can just um, outburst and it's kind of like finding um the sweet middle where you have i i think we should have calm corridors um in which the noise level i mean you're you're walking the corridors the amount of times i used to say indoor voices where you have a nice calm orderly corridor which is calm enough for the students who easily have sensory overload and it is not too quiet for the students who need to need to be able to have that break or have that kind of 
freedom to be able to talk or to be able to speak, um, to have those conversations or walk or be a little bit loud, not silent. So I think having the calm corridor helps both. And students who are who do get sensory overload a lot of the time, these students are given a five minute early pass to be able to get to the lesson five minutes early. Yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying. I can see James, Bren, anyone in the audience, if there's anyone who wants to contribute anything, you're more than welcome to at any point. I would love to hear the perspective of different teachers. I'm just kind of being a devil's advocate here and trying to cover a lot of the um, opinions that I saw floating around on Twitter. Um, I don't really understand how it descended into the kind of chaos that it did because um, you know, ultimately, I feel like all teachers are coming from the same place, which is, you know, creating what they deem the best environment for children. So I do sometimes think, I mean, I found it a little bit ironic that, you know, it was a really big debate on um, behaviour. And I also felt like teachers weren't behaving themselves on Twitter. So, you know, I found that a little bit funny. And before I go over to you, James, I just want to really quickly remind everybody that this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Um, have you checked out their latest releases? You can use code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order and don't miss out. Visit John Cat bookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today um yeah james over to you hi thanks everyone i'm in australia at the moment um so oh, it's first great, thing in the morning but it's fascinating i'm i was uh, uh born in the uk as you can tell um yeah. and i'm just fascinated how this topic has even become how how has it even surfaced why are we even discussing this to be honest because you know as as baga said like a calm corridor is what we really try and aim for and that's what we do here in australia we'll have teachers in corridors uh, during changeover times it's like a kind of a, a small we call it yard duty we'll have different words for everything but it's where you you, you monitor um when the kids are moving between classes um but i think possibly another reason we don't really have this conversation here is because our schools are a lot more outdoors than in the uk the weather's hotter and uh, a lot of these corridors as you would have in the uk are actually outdoors so you're walking from building to building a lot more than you are within a building. We don't really have like one giant teaching class, like one one building full of classrooms so much with corridors in it. Most of our schools are like little tiny buildings scattered around with lots of space in between outdoors. So the noise and the, the crowdedness is not so much of a problem. But yeah, I do find it fascinating how polarized this is and how long has this been a question that people have been wondering. Yeah, no, honestly, James, thank you. It's really good to know, you know, it's always nice to compare, you know, schools to maybe other countries, um, because I do, I agree, like, why did it become such a big topic? I think that, um, I mean, that school in particular was in Hackney, so I'm in an adjacent borough uh, to Hackney, um, I'm in a borough called Waltham Forest, and one thing that I've learned from Hackney, especially having met a lot of the excluded children from that borough, is that they have a lot of primary schools that would... Um, refer to themselves as trauma-informed primary schools. So there's a lot of, um, just a lot of thought that goes into, you know, understanding the emotional well-being of children. I think far more than average in London that happens in primary schools in Hackney. I'm, I'm you know, happy to be corrected if anyone knows better than me. But then a lot of the secondary schools in Hackney uh, also have a much higher proportion of what's 
you know, refer to as zero tolerance, you know, things like silent corridors. Um, and I think, I mean, I saw somebody recently post exclusion statistics and, um, you know, the, what jumped out at me and I guess everyone who probably saw it on Twitter was that the jump, and I think actually it might have been Hackney Borough, the, where the statistics were from, but I think the jump in exclusions between year six and year seven, so like suspensions, I don't think it was permanent exclusions, was like really, really high, like significantly high. And, um, you know, it was just something I found really interesting. And, you know, James, I agree with you, like, where has this argument come, th- come from? I do feel like, and if anyone else wants to jump in, like Tom, you might have something you want to share as well. But I do feel like a lot of it comes from, um, you know, since schools have academized, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, there's so many different people who kind of think that they know what the best way to run a school is and I don't necessarily disagree like I I do I don't actually really have a problem with academization I think that if a group of um, staff you know want to come together and they you know want to run a school in a way that they see as successful or think works for their local context and demographic then fine I don't really have a problem with that per se but um, you know I do sometimes think does academization kind of contribute to these um, really big differences in opinion but what I kind of struggle with is why does it cause so many spats on the internet you know like it's a public forum and sometimes I do find it a little bit weird how things kind of descend into you know just quite bad and I'm sure like Bahja I'm sure you've seen it I'm sure you know a lot of the people in the audience have seen it I just think it's a little bit crazy the level to which arguments can get to on these topics, especially considering that they're discussions around behaviour. I think it's just um, early Twitter is kind of like an extension of the staff room. And um, and I remember back in mainstream, I used, as a head of year, I used to avoid the staff room um, because all I would get is com- complaints. You'd come in to just make a coffee and then so-and-so did this and so-and-so did that. And I think there was a a difference between um like there was a disconnect between teachers who are dealing with um student behavior um on a frontline so i will call it frontline teachers like all the teaching stuff and then you had um then you had the pastor in the middle and then you had slt and i think there was a disconnect between um slt and staff and I think teachers are just asking uh, or even begging for extra support because the behaviour um, in schools are getting a lot worse. The behaviours in the corridors are getting a lot worse, but the people um, above are not seen enough uh, or the children don't particularly care anymore about the people above. In my case, it felt like um, the I was always the bad cop, so I had to be everywhere and anywhere, but I couldn't be physically I had to be teaching as well so I think that's the the arguments and it's coming from I think just the sheer frustration of what's going on in schools yeah you had you had your hands up hand up James was there something you wanted to add yeah it's been fascinating to listen to this you know um, I think probably I could conclude that it comes down to the just the differences in environment so schools here and probably in the UK, or maybe even more so there, are very, very different from each other. Even government schools are completely different from each other. You, you can travel five kilometres down the road and completely different um, 
uh, ethnic mix, academic attainment, you know, different, um, different in terms of those things actually, but, uh, and different in terms of behavior and school culture. Um, some things are, are pretty constant, you know, the building quality and the teaching resources and the teachers enthusiasm and stuff, but, but the culture of the school probably requires that some places have what I would call extreme measures like silent corridors. And maybe I just don't, I've never worked in a school that would ever need that, but it's possible that some schools do. I think it's a bit like, you know, going in, into lockdown, you know, that's an extreme thing, but <laughs> you know, we did that under extreme circumstances only. And I think it's a little bit like that. It's hard for me before 2020, it would have been hard to imagine that we would need to go into lockdown. Uh, and I think having never worked in a school that has all these issues, like you've described, it's hard for me to imagine that you'd need a silent corridor, but yeah, I accept maybe there are some schools that just do. And there are other, other odd things that schools do as well. Um, it just depends on, on the culture of the school and what it needs. Yeah, no, honestly, James, I completely agree with you. And I do definitely agree that there's such a big difference in the schools. I'll tell you guys um, another quick story. So when I was in year six, I was um, homeless. And so because I didn't have an address, I essentially couldn't apply well, I didn't get allocated a year seven pl uh, place. I had to wait until the end of year six. So like August, after I'd done my SATs and everything, I had to wait for everyone in the in my, my age in the borough to get allocated a school. And then I was basically given a choice of two schools and they were the two, you know, quote unquote, worst schools in the borough. And I remember my mum was with me and she just picked like what she saw as the lesser of two evils. And it was a school that was essentially three buses away. And yeah, I had to take the bus well the buses and go all the way there it was really far and um I remember it was a school like behavior was really poor like really really poor I went from primary school with like zero behavior incidents um and I remember sometimes like just even trying to get from my lesson to the canteen at like lunchtime felt dangerous you know like older kids would throw that like it was back in if anyone remembers the happy slapping era I'm sure you remember this. It was like a thing where people just slapped. <laughs> it was just scary. I remember that. I was 11. I was so small. like, And I just remember it was a scary place, right? I hated it. And I remember I would like beg my mum to not send me to school or whatever. And sometimes people would hit me and I'd hit them back and I'd get in trouble. Obviously, deserved. But um, it was never me that started anything. And obviously, I would get in trouble. And, you know, I understand why I did. But I remember my mum... Um, my mum would basically applied for so we ended up basically being housed in a council estate and um, my mum moved us to, well she applied for another school for me and I just so happened the estate that I moved on to was next to the best school in the borough so it was like an outstanding school oversubscribed always had loads of applications the head teacher was knighted you know just that kind of school and um, I got accepted for year eight and I just stayed in that school without incident. Like I just fit in from the start. It was a zero tolerance school, um, but it was fine for me because I never had any behavior issues anyway. So like it was fine. And, you know, I never had problems down the corridor. Just I mean, I had other issues with the fact that it was zero tolerance, but it had nothing to do with behavior. And, um, you know, I stayed there without event until year 13, where I then, you know, went to uni on a scholarship and um like I just remember during that it's not something I actually think about that much but when I saw that zero um tolerance and corridor silent corridors argument it kind of made me think of that time where I understand why some schools do it like I personally wouldn't um 
really want to be in a school that has silent corridors. I don't think it's good for children. However, I do understand, like I'll never really criticize a school for prioritizing physical safety. Like I, I'm just, you know, a teacher who thinks that there are other types of safety that are really important as well, like children's, you know, emotional and psychological safety and things like that. And I think, you know, as Bahadur was saying earlier, I think it is good for children's development for them to be able to talk and to learn moderation. I think moderation is a really big thing that children learn through these, you know, interpersonal interactions that they have in those little, you know, critical windows, whether it's between lessons or at lunchtime and, you know, that kind of peer-to-peer interaction and knowing when to be quiet and when to not be, etc. Um, I think is really important to teach them. And I don't think having silent corridors essentially teaches that. However, a combination of my past experiences and also just kind of growing up in London, I do understand why some schools have zero tolerance. But one thing I just kind of want to put to the audience, if anyone wants to contribute, is I do sometimes feel like children from poor backgrounds are put down in a way that they shouldn't be. Like, am I wrong to kind of feel like, like, I don't like the argument that, um, you know, some schools need to have silent corridors because it's in a, you know, deprived area, to quote quite literally what I saw on Twitter last weekend. You know, some people are like, well, you don't know our local context. You know, it's got X percent of child deprivation and it's got this and it's got that. And, you know, that proportion of our children are pupil premium. And, you know, like silent corridors is really good for them. You know, like we're teaching them manners. Like I kind of really hate that argument. And I would say a big part of why I hate it is because of my own upbringing. Like, you know, even though I grew up with a single parent in a council house, I was free school meals, etc., I was still expected, like it was the minimum expectation at home that I would respect my teachers and do as I was told at school. You know, my background didn't impact that, if that makes sense. And so, you know, I just kind of want to put to anybody, and I guess I'll start with you, Bahja, and, you know, Tom, James, anyone that's willing to chip in. Do you sometimes feel like, um, you know, children from some backgrounds get stereotyped when it comes to things like zero tolerance? I think definitely, um, but I do want to say zero. I think there's a difference between zero tolerance and silent corridor. I think to me, zero tolerance is, is an appropriate punishment based on the behaviour that's shown. So if you're, I don't know, shouting down the corridor like a absolute lunatic, there is a sanction for it. You've got detention. Um, if you're acting dangerously, there's a sanction. So. I think zero tolerance to me means that there's an appropriate punishment based on the behaviour um, you are placing. But where a silent corridor is just you just complete silenced, um, no talking. And I don't agree with that completely. But I do think, um, I think it's, I don't know, I'm going to use the word, I think it's just disgusting when people say kids from poor backgrounds need to have, um, are we need to be need to have the silent corridor because in my head I'm thinking like oh we're just preparing them for prison um that's basically um my my viewpoint because it's well they need to start learning how to conform because they're going to have to conform somewhere else um I don't think where I do think there's a lot more challenges in deprived area and I do think less children are diagnosed with the needs of the need or they don't get the support they don't get the support at home there's a lot more trauma and that's where I completely agree with like you said the primary schools um, in Hackney that are again uh, trauma-informed training my 
mainstream school and my current school, we we had training twice on trauma-informed um, um, teaching and how to work with students. And I think all schools should be trauma-informed. So I think making the link of um, children in deprived areas or schools in deprived areas need to have um, silent corridors because that is the only way uh, we can deal with them. It's just completely wrong. Um, I see, honestly, I, I see what you're saying, Bahja. And, you know, as I said, I'm trying to be devil's advocate and try, you know, draw as much out of you as I can in terms of your views on this, because, you know, I, I want to kind of cover or capture all of the views I saw on silent corridors. But I want to ask, why do you think it's preparing children for prisons? I mean, like, I just remember a lot of the times um, working with um, my year 11s last year, particularly my very naughty year 11s last year, um, the complaints they used to get at our school was like prison. And I was like, no, it's just, it's an institution, it's got rules, it's got policies. Um, but walking in silence, um, you're already in schools, you're already told when to have your break, when you're going to have your lessons, when to come into school, um, what you're going to wear, um, when you can, when, what you're going to learn, when you can talk, when you can eat. Um, and now we're going to add of, um, you can't talk in a corridor. Um, you can't run too fast. It's just too much conformity. And I feel like for some students, it would just, um, it would just, in, to me this feels more like a prison than a school it's not an education setting and that's what we're preparing them for if we go through the very draconian way of complete silence in a corridor interesting um i'm gonna hand over to brent welcome well great great topic um I, I saw that uh, twitter um sort of spat and it's interesting because my my first reaction was to look at the corridor of the school like that and I think my comment was you get landed airplane in that corridor it's a nice big wide corridor and I thought to myself do you really need to have a silent corridor which is obviously in a really good building now I've helped reclaim our corridors after COVID so we, we had lots of issues the corridors get very boisterous you know kids got out of sync we got the high-vis jackets on we policed the corridors and we calmed things down and the thing is, I would prefer a calm and a friendly corridor because I myself would struggle in a silent corridor because I walk up down the corridor. I talk to my colleagues in the corridor. Brent, you struggle at any point with silence. Like you wouldn't, <laughs> what are you talking about? Like literally you cannot shut up whatever anyone says. I but love that. But it's true, though. But that's what schools should be, the interactions. We want kids to be communicating. We mate, want... if I had a school of views, I, I would literally introduce Silent Corridor straight away, mate. <laughs> straight away, without hesitation. You, you know what I love about you? is you, You're just like my old teachers, just telling me to shut up. But the problem <laughs> with that is it's stunting and lobotomizing our kids. We want our kids to be friendly. And that's and I've, I've taught at school for 20 years, and one of the, the first things that people remark about our school, it isn't a working-class area. I've got some of the most deprived areas of Derbyshire and de-industrialised, left-behind communities. I've got some of my, my best kids are actually from some of the the worst backgrounds. And some of our, our working-class kids have actually got superb manners because they've been brought up to, to respect people. But we have to work hard with those children too and instill within them a, a certain culture and an ethos and a way of doing things. But at the heart of it is care, understanding, 
and friendliness. I want children to be able to communicate with each other. I want them to be able to control their behavior. I want them to be able to sit, you know, in, in a corridor and actually, how are you? How's, how's today? Do you watch the match the weekend? I literally use the corridor as, as a place where I get to know kids sometimes, as a place where kids get to know other kids. So you got to have that balance between, yes, school is a place of learning, absolutely. But it's also a social and an organic place that you create a culture. Why are we seeing so many schools do this? It's because we're losing control and behavior. It's, it's, it's basically trying to reclaim some sort of control. But it's draconian for me. It's Victorian. It's, it's, it's very old school. And, and that's where this debate is, because it's the same as slant, same as desks in rows. There's a definite sort of philosophy at stake here of what are we teaching our children for? Um, how do we get them to behave? And I would rather have their cooperation than basically stunt them to a system where they're just conformity. And and that's just me personally, as somebody who's, who's on the neurodivergent scale, as also a teacher, I couldn't teach and I couldn't work. I couldn't feel happy in a school like that. And if I can't feel happy in a school like that, there are going to be kids who are like me who may, you know, go to school and work, what would you do at school? We walk down the corridors in silence. It's 2023, guys. 2023. That's industrialization. We're past, we're, we're, we're post-industrialist society. And yet we're industrializing our children and almost regressing by having things like this. I just want to say, thank you, Bren, and please stay there. But I just want to say, if there's anybody who's got a view that they want to share that might be different to either Bahja, James or Brent, you know, feel free to come and contribute at any point. You're more than welcome to. Like, Brent, I know what you're saying. Um, you know, that's a view a lot of teachers held. Um, and, you know, I'd be curious to know. I mean, Tom, what do you think? <laughs> um, I don't, I... I don't really have a view on. I, I the thing is, it's it uh, with a lot of these things, it's contextual. If you are in a large mainstream secondary school, and I have worked in one like this, where in between lessons there are groups of, you know, big year elevens marauding around, sort of pushing past members of staff or running or charging around or going to the toilet areas together and vaping or whatever it is or shouting or screaming or swearing all these different things and it's not just the odd student it's it's gangs almost of students um <laughs> in between lessons in that context you you as a as a teacher a middle leader a leader you have to find a way of stopping that from happening for the good of the students and for the good of the staff and for the good of everybody. You've got, you've got to stop it from happening. Now, I'm not, you know, whether it's silent corridors or whatever you decide to do, and I can totally understand why someone would think silent corridors could be a potential, one of the things we could do to solve this issue would, would be that. Because I've, because the, the problem is, is that you do have to have sort of those almost I, I mean I, I totally get that some people you know some people would say from the outside it's going too far it's going too far etc etc but how do they know what the situation was like before those silent corridors how do they know what was going on in that school before they introduced that now they could look at it and go that's too extreme fair enough fine but did you know what was going on before that was introduced? Um, 
would I be my question. I, I see what you're saying, Tom. And, you know, I think it is something that I hear really regularly in teaching. Um, but, you know, Brent, I saw as well that you compared it to, you know, things like slant and rows. Um, me personally, I love rows. <laughs> I don't sit kids in groups. I, I mean, I do now in AP, but that's more, that's because I don't actually have a lab. But when I was in a lab in mainstream, I always did rows. And, you know, I've seen people on Twitter say that's really draconian and it's, you know, it's awful to treat children like that. And, you know, I actually felt like I was helping them learn by doing that. So, you know, I think it's really interesting how different opinions are. Bahaja, I can see that your hand... Oh, Brent, were you going to say something? I see you've come off mute. Yeah, yeah. I, I, Go ahead. I, the, the thing is, I'm, I'm a strict person. I'm, I'm a bit old school. The kids would say that I'm one of the strictest teachers in school. But you can't, as, as the point was earlier on, you, you, you can't overdo it. You've got to have the balance. It's, it's, it's getting the Goldilocks porridge right. You want controlled and measured and corridors which are friendly, corridors which are business-like. Um, but at the same time, you know, corridor, corridors were safe. I've had staff members who were injured in the corridors and I had to speak to the head teacher about doing, you know, work kids working on the left-hand side. You know, we've got the people in high-vis vests, but we've have, we have calmed it down. We've returned our students to a kind of pre-pandemic level. And in fact, that's helped the behaviour in classroom because we're getting kids calmer in the corridors. They're coming into the lessons calmer. But as the lesson starts as they come in, I stand at the door and I greet the children on the corridor as they come into my class. And I start my class with an interaction with the children, then they settle down, then they get on with the work. And that's, it is important to have interactions with students. It is important to have a relationship with students. And that's the thing, silent corridors for me is just how, how can you form relationships, get to know kids and have even a friendly workplace when your corridors are like, you know, Hogwarts when it was taken over by the little pig <laughs> woman, you know, that's what I, I silent corridors to me it feels feels like you know there's you know that type of Hogwarts taken over by Imelda Stolton, you know that that's what it feels like to me as opposed to, you know, an organic happy place, and that's why you want schools to be happy, thriving places. You want kids to feel safe, yes, but you want to feel as if that you know there is interactions, and, and we are social creatures. Human beings are social. Kids are social creatures, so. I just think that it is it's not where I would want to work. I get why people do it, but I think it's I think it's people I think in a moral sense feel very strongly about it because they themselves would feel like I would feel about that's such a horrible thing. But it does suit some people. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Yeah, I see. Thanks, Brent. I do see what you're saying. Like, I also wouldn't want to work in a school that's got silent corridors. However, I don't think I'm against it in the same way that a lot of teachers are like I feel like if it's what a school thinks works for them then I think it works for them I agree with you Brent in that I think there are better ways but the one thing I do want to ask is does silent corridors mean that you don't have relationships because you know I feel like you can still have incredible relationships with uh, pupils despite silent corridors so you know I'd love your thoughts and anyone else's thoughts on that and then I'll move over to you Badger. Uh, I think it helps. I think I think you're right. You can't have other other ways of having relationships, but it's those micro those micro sort of interactions you get sometimes can give you a lot of information about the children, or even just smile. You know, I I do I high five people. I'm one of those going down the corridors. I'm I'm high fiving people and having chats with them. How was your weekend? And but that's 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 me. I I couldn't work in a place that wasn't a little bit. I've got to say it a little bit of fun. I mean, where's the fun in education? Where's the fun in schools? No wonder we've got kids not wanting to go to school if you're walking around silent in a <laughs> corridor. I mean, that's not, you know what I mean? That, that's not our ideal. We, we, have, we have serious social problems, serious societal problems. <laughs> we're having to stunt our children and silent them. I, mean, just, I, I hear you 
different. And you know what? I, I would love to say, if there's anyone in the audience who's got anything they want to contribute, honestly, feel free to. You're more than welcome to share your views. Um, you know, I'd love to hear from as many people as possible. You know, Brent, I actually have a confession to make. I'll just see, you know, if I could fit this in quickly. But, you know, Slant, and you did mention this earlier as well, Brent, you know, Slant is something that is very heavily criticised um, on Edge of Twitter, as, you know, everyone knows. But, you know, I... Um, I would say I'm, you know, I, I do restoratives. I'm a trauma-informed practitioner. But, I mean, maybe I'm not entitled to say that. But when I was in mainstream, obviously I'm in AP now, but when I was in mainstream, I used a variation of slant called STAR, where, uh, you know, whenever I was teaching a class, I'd always do a countdown where I'd say three, two, one, STAR. And what I meant by that was, you know, the, I mean, I didn't make the abbreviations. It was actually a school policy. But, um, you know, it would be things like sit up, you know, track the speaker, but really, the reason why I was saying it was so that all pupils would put their pens down and would look at me. I wasn't really pedantic about, you know, how much they sat up or any of those things. And, you know, I taught children that had really pronounced SEN and um, they all managed it. They all coped fine. And actually, um, I was observed by all faculties in the school um, a lot of the time and by PGCEs and things like that because I had zero truancy you know, I knew that my pupils were actually really happy in their lessons. I would describe my lessons as, well, in that school, in that context at the time, I would say that, you know, I don't like to use the word fun, but like I knew kids were happy there. And, you know, I knew I had really good relationships with them. And yet I still was able to, when I was talking, ensure that there was complete silence and things like that. And, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have, like, I, I didn't really feel like I needed to, I mean, appease isn't the right word, but like I, I feel like I was, I'm a mix between both ends of the spectrum in terms of the argument on Twitter. And, you know, seeing people describe things like slant in the way that they do. I, I mean, I personally don't find it triggering because I understand. I understand. And I think the people that criticize things like slant do come from a good place in that they care about children. And, you know, if, inevitably everyone has different views on what they think is the right thing to do but you know I just think it's really interesting how divided opinions can be um Daniel I wanted to pass over to you I think I have seen threads of yours it comes up on my timeline every now and then I think I did see that you weighed in on the silent corridors debate so you know over to you hi thanks can you all hear me yep yeah um I'd sort of weighed in on what I think is sort of really fundamental to the discussion, which we've talked about um, school context. Tom Rogers has talked about school context in terms of the idea that a school can be chaotic and using silent corridors can be a way of sort of restoring order to uh, a chaotic school corridor environment. But I also think that school context really matters in terms of what best suits your school site. I've worked in a number of schools and the school that triggered sort of all of this discussion um, uh, tweeted by Mohsen Ishmael is a school in which there are over a thousand students. Um, it's uh, built in 2009 and all of the students are transitioning on open walkways above a central atrium. And in that case, you simply can't have uh, kids sort of chatting to each other across a normal level because 
the noise builds up across the atrium, kids are going to continue to keep raising their voices and teachers just giving instructions, just keeping the corridors orderly are going to keep raising their voices. And soon you just have shouting with, you know, a thousand voices in a central space. Now, there are, you know, there are a number of different ways of dealing with that. And I've seen uh, one school in Birmingham which places uh, decibel levels, uh, decibel meters on all of their pillars on one central area um, with three stages. And when it's read, uh, all of the members of staff hold up their hands and everyone has to transition immediately into silence. That works as a sort of remedial measure. I'd be interested to see over the course of a week how often that's happening, because being in the school for a few hours, I saw that happening two or three times. Or you can have silence. But what you can't have is everyone talks at the volume they need to be heard, because that volume is very soon the volume you'd be shouting to each other in a noisy pub. And that's really not a conducive volume for learning. Thank you, Daniel. I mean, I see what you're saying. And, you know, um, I don't think you were here when I was talking about it earlier, but I was essentially saying that, I mean, I also know the school that, um, you know, when Mohsen Ismail tweeted that video that caused that huge debate last weekend, um, I am also familiar with the school. In fact, I, I, um, I was saying earlier that I'm in a pro in an adjacent borough to that one and um funnily enough guys this week on monday i had a new pupil join my tutor group um and he was actually from that school and um when he mentioned it i said oh um you know to kind of tell me about it and um you know going back to what Bach just said earlier he basically was like oh it was like a prison but you know i mean it wasn't a surprise to me to hear a child that's permanently excluded to you know describe their school in that way um but you know i just think it's really interesting daniel hearing what you're saying um i think so many schools do things so differently like you know i was saying earlier i'm not necessarily against silent corridors and i'm but I do also, I feel inclined to agree with, you know, Brent and Bahja that, you know, there are probably better ways. Um, earlier this year in January, I actually went to visit a school in Leeds. Um, and the reason why I specifically went to the visit was to um, kind of observe their inclusive practices. And um, they actually allow mobile phones. They had a policy that allows mobile phones and the children basically, you know, in between lessons, it was an all through school as well, but I was just observing the secondary part. Um, they can just basically pull their phone out of their pocket and just kind of look at it a lot of them were using it to look at their timetable so um uh, we had a really long Q&A session with the head teacher afterwards and I had a lot of questions for her like for example you know I'm SLT in a pro and I'm sorry but mobile phones is like continues to be the bane of my existence in the workplace because you know children use them for really nasty things like I feel like phones are play a huge hand in a lot of bullying um, you know, I wouldn't allow children to have phones in school because, um, you know, they could record other people's, they could record teachers. It's just dangerous. You know, there's a lot of safeguarding risks. They can call people, they can arrange fights outside of school. There's a lot that can happen. And so we collect all mobile phones in and put them in wallets in the morning that are labelled and then we give them back at the end of the day. And every child has to hand them in. If I see any child that hasn't handed them in, I just kind of essentially go get it off them. And I'll say, you know what, I won't put it in your wallet, but I'm going to keep that for you for the rest of the day. And they do tend to hand it over I mean I don't really know what different it makes what difference it makes being in my bag as opposed to in a wallet in the office however you know we still take phones off them but I found it really interesting that you know 
a massive school of that size in Leeds in what I believe to have been, you know, quite a quote unquote deprived area. I also talked um, earlier about how I don't like the phrase, um, you know, d- d- deprived in the sense that I do sometimes feel like people hold children from certain backgrounds to a lower standard. But, you know, I found it really interesting that it works for them in their school. I did ask the head teacher, how do you make that work? You know, how do you know that children aren't being victims of you know cyber bullying or there isn't anything untoward happening or there aren't children taking photos of people that they shouldn't be photographing at school and stuff like that and um you know I just found it really interesting um and you know so Daniel I am quite interested why I mean I see what you're saying about the design of the school so is your argument essentially you agree with silent corridors if a school is designed in a way because I mean the point you're making about how it's going to end up being like a pub like you know that's a fair point I see what you're saying um but would you therefore say if a school doesn't have a structural need then there shouldn't be silent corridors um I think I'm saying if sorry can you hear me yeah yeah I can hear you perfectly fine sorry accident you just muted my own microphone um so I think I'm saying it's not just if a school doesn't have a silent need, it's if a school doesn't have a silent utility, uh, sorry, uh, structural utility. So in my previous school, we were a school with uh, pretty good behaviour on a large site um, with eight buildings sort of clustered around a central campus. Um, For a lot of transitions, they didn't involve corridors at all. And if you're not involved in corridors at all, if students are moving out in the open, then there's really no need for silence. Um, You don't want them to shout, but you can absolutely have a conversation because you're not creating that echo effect um, that with all of the best acoustic baffles in the world, um, you're not going to manage to eliminate from a school in which all of the transitions are internal and all of the transitions around that central atrium space. What I would say, um, and it sounds like we're uh, both living and working in very much the same part of London, is that I spoke to, um, so that's a a school very near where I live. Um, I spoke to students uh, during my time, um, the sort of day I spent in that school. And all of the students I spoke to, uh, both sort of walking around um, and chatting to students at break and at family lunch, seemed pretty happy with the school. There was, you know, absolutely no one's going to argue that the school isn't strict, but there was a sense that all of them had that they were valued by their teachers, all of the students I spoke to, and that they were receiving a good education. But... I'm not saying that you shouldn't have silent corridors if your school doesn't require them due to a structural need. I'm really saying that your structural need is going to dictate whether silent corridors are necessary, whether they're advisable, or whether they're, in the case of the last school I worked in, actually inadvisable, because it would take more effort to police them than any game that you could associate with margin, uh, any game that you'd associate with marginal, sorry, marginal game that you'd associate with silent corridors. I mean, it's been a long week for me. (laughs) 
no, don't worry. It's, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. I mean, um, another thing I want to put to you, Daniel, and, you know, anyone in the audience and any of the other speakers are welcome to answer this. Um, you know, somebody, I saw somebody tweet something along the lines of, well, you know, in independent schools or in private schools, they don't make children, you know, walk around in silence. They don't have silent corridors. So, like, I kind of want to ask you guys, do you sometimes think then maybe the children in the state sector are controlled more than they should be? Uh, personally, I went to a private school and all of the sort of Liberty Hall ideas of private schools, I think, are entirely nonsense. Uh, my private school, so uh, the year I got my GCSEs, um, uh, it was the second highest performing in the country. And we had Saturday detentions. We didn't have silent corridors. Um, however, we were hushed on corridors. We did have silent stairwells. Um, we did have, you know, uh, walking to lessons in procession. Um, for some of the transitions, I think it was only transitions in first and second form, um, which were year seven and eight in the state sector. But I think there's this belief um, where one sees uh, private schools from the outside that they're, you know, they're hotbeds of pupil expression because they have really active debating societies or they all have really small classrooms, which again isn't true. My school had a standard class size of 24, um, smaller than the state sector, but hardly the sort of five or six that we're told to associate with private schools. And I think in private schools, there's more than one model. There's, you know, as much diversity, in fact, possibly more diversity in the private sector than the state sector. The private system can run schools like um, uh, run schools like Summerhill, uh, which are, you know, entirely free. Students can choose whether to attend lessons or not. Or schools like Westminster, where students um, spend not only have longer school days than we have in the state sector, but also have half school days on Saturday. Yeah, no, thank you, Daniel. Uh, honestly, it's really interesting how different schools are. And, you know, thank you for sharing your experiences in a private school. Bahja, I wanted to pass over to you. What are your thoughts? I think um, earlier, I think what I wanted to say was, um, I think what we just need to teach children is just action to have consequences. Um, when we talk about silent corridors and you know when you have large uh boisterous year 11s running down the corridor well if you're running down the corridor there is a consequence here's a consequence learn from it um and i think by having a sign i think was i don't know if it was tom or brent who said that i think post lockdown behavior went crazy uh the kid the kids basically came back feral um and now schools are trying to sort of get uh, power back and honestly kids do outnumber the teachers in mainstream um and therefore it if we have silent corridor silent lessons we are taking control back um but as a head of year being my year group will um happily tell you that i was um quite harsh on them but that's because the consequences were um I would keep them behind, make them line up by lunchtime before lunch. Um, 
but that was purely because you went into English like absolute hooligans. Um, so after English, and I know it's lunchtime and the queues are going to be long, you are going to line up and I'm going to dismiss the nice kids very quickly. It's just if we have the simple of actions, consequence, um, kids do understand and they do learn from it and then after get better. And I think by by the time my year 11s, uh, by the time they got to year 11 from year 9 to 11, um, I didn't have to do much of the policing around school and everything because um, they finally learned that if they are um, if they are behaving like normal human beings and actually doing their best, um, it was a lot more friendly environment. Um, but if they were uh, being a nuisance, they were punished. So it was kind of simple. And I think having, like Brent said, having the silent corridor, I mean, I can't stand the silent corridors. I mean, currently my uh, school, where my classroom is, is... Um, it's completely silent and sometimes I would just we have walkie-talkies and I would just turn on the walkie-talkies to hear that there is noise around or there's actually stuff happening around school. Um, silent corridor will sound like, I like Brent's um, um, comparison to when um, Dolores Umbridge took over in Hogwarts. It was just ridiculous. And I think school should be an area where children learn, children get um, are social, they enjoy, they spend majority of their life um as teenagers in schools so by having it completely silent is just ruining part of the childhood I think my best memories are between corridors catching up with the gossip my friend was in um, was in the other classroom in English we need to catch up a little bit of the drama of whatever happened in English or whatever happened at break time we can have those little catch-ups or even catching up with our teachers that might have not taught me that taught me in year seven um, the by year 11, I hadn't actually really seen them around and I just saw them in a corridor. So, yeah, I think. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Badger. Um, did you guys know that, I mean, I don't know how true this is, but um, did you know that children, if you start school at nur- in nursery um, and leave at 18, you will have spent about a million minutes learning as well not learning per se but like in lessons or at school really and like that's a really really long time like a really long time I don't know how wrong that is if um but that was a stat that was shared with me by a Senko and um you know I see what you're saying Bahja and I feel like I mean I've said it loads of times now I'm not in mainstream however when I was in mainstream I did actually quite like the you know hustle and bustle in corridors because every year I used to do this thing in September whenever I got my new timetable when I met each class and I'd go through my expectations I would always say to them guys look there's nothing wrong with your emotions like if you if you happen to show up to class angry or upset or any of those things like I want you to understand there is nothing wrong with your emotions however there is something wrong with you know breaking the school rules etc or you know harming others or yourself etc so like you know I am okay with your emotions it's not a problem but it's really important that you a show up to lesson on time and b still follow the rules I used to always say that to them and so you know as Brent said earlier as well I always used to greet my kids on entry at the door and you know just having corridors with you know normal kind of volumes of noise nothing that was like really policed um, I could tell from a mile off like you know as I was stood at my door watching the kids kind of walk towards me I already knew who was a bit off kilter or who's about to show up in you know a bad way I could tell you could see it on their face and so you know seeing this um silent corridors argument did make me wonder a little bit you know um 
what how how are the children i mean i do know children that go to schools like that and um you know they love it like if i use uh Michaela as an example i know a lot of families that who have children that go to Michaela and you know um i know that it you know Michaela gets a lot of criticism on twitter however every single parent and family that i've met who have children that go there i in in my personal experience have nothing but praise for the school so you know i do completely understand as well that sometimes twitter isn't necessarily um reflective of what actually is going on um but you know i personally quite like as brent and bachelor were saying i quite like having that noise and that normality in corridors and you know a big thing for me is moderation i feel like children can be taught how to do things properly you know they can be taught it's important that you respect the school community and the environment and yourselves etc and that they can learn these things without having to walk in single file in silence but also as i said you know i understand why some schools do it like when i was at school um, i mentioned this way earlier i know not everybody would have been here um so from year 8 onwards i went to a quote unquote zero tolerance school and i remember one of the things that I remember really distinctively from school was when it came to exam days what they would do is they would publish the seating plan um near reception and what we'd have to do was find our seat so say you know your row B seat 13 whatever you need to find exactly where you are on that sheet and then you need to go to the playground and we had to recreate that seating plan amongst ourselves there was 240 of us in our year group we would figure it out there were no markings on the ground nothing we would just have to like whilst the rest of the playground around us were enjoying their break time you know or lunch time or whatever depending on what time of day the exam was we were expected to just talk amongst ourselves 240 of us and get ourselves into the, you know those lines and you know SLT would then appear and they'd let us in one row at a time and like not a word would be spoken from that playground all the way to that exam hall and you just see kids you know one after the other take a seat a row would be done and the next row next row and there were like no errors like ever and like i remember that from school and you know i i remember never having a problem with it in all honesty um and you know i have been to i've actually worked in a school that had silent corridors my first school was like that and i remember i used to ask the children you know what are your thoughts and i'd never met any child really that had complaints about it i'm i'm children you guys hear me am i cutting out yeah very briefly oh, sorry i'm getting a phone call um i i think a lot of the time um children just kind of do what's expected of them at whatever school they're at um but you know i just think it's so interesting that there's such divided opinion on what the right thing to do is and you know can it ever really be said that there is a right way um and you know another point i'd made earlier was academization i do feel like schools being able to get so much more freedom now in how they do things contributes a lot to these differences but my personal opinion i just feel like a lot of the schools that have this you know quote unquote zero tolerance do it for their pa essentially and you know prioritize physical safety over all else or you know maximizing learning time because that's ultimately what they see as helping their pa the most daniel i can see you're coming off mute is there anything you wanted to say Uh, yeah I wanted to follow up on um what Badger said earlier and what you've just said about Bakela. Um so Badger raised the point that corridors gave her an opportunity to catch up with teachers. 
But I'd sort of point out that that's not something that Mohsen's tweet in any way undermined. He said that, you know, the voices that you'd hear in that school's corridors were students interacting with teachers. And you've said the, um, you know, that every family, you know, who sends a child to Michaela um, is very happy with the experience. But what I'd sort of say about Michaela and what I think that, you know, any detractor of Michaela who hasn't actually spent some time talking to Michaela kids and families sort of really fundamentally dis misunderstands is that Michaela has really, really good teacher relationships. And the school that uh, most tweets about I think also has very good student and teacher relationships. And having a uh, a high control po corridor policy doesn't preclude students and teachers having good relationships. I'd say actually it gives more space for those teacher-student interactions. Um, if that's you know, if that's something that your site allows for and promotes. I see what you're saying there, Daniel Bahaja. Is there anything you wanted to say? Um, sorry, I was just sort of reading an article. Um, I think with with the corridors, and I understand what you said about the um the voices and the loudness and the decibel, but uh, I do honestly believe that if um if there is a high or is there enough staff presence, um, if there is um good behavior policy, that corridors can be calm and children can use um, indoor voices. I also think in terms from if I put the pastoral and also safeguarding perspective, those in, those moments of interaction, like Yasmin said, sometimes um, you'll notice differences in students or in these kind of on structure time, that's when you can you might be able to pick up on certain things. Um, those kinds of some are important, but if if policies are in place, if there's staff presence, the corridors can be calm. Um, it's when staff are not present that corridors end up becoming very, very dangerous. Um, and that's where all of these problems are kind of happening. Um, the Michaela School, I don't really have uh, much of an opinion on the Michaela School. I've, I, I just don't know how it works and I just don't particularly understand. I think parents who send their children there, um, that's the type of school that they want and they feel like their child would be fine at. Um, and obviously when you apply to school, you agree to their policies. So yeah, I would love to visit the school to be fair. Yeah, thank you, Bahja. Um, I just want to remind everybody that this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. You can visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Um, you know, I think it's 
really interesting. Um, honestly, got that silent corridors debate for me was one where I, I just kind of couldn't believe a lot of what I was reading. I think for me, it's never lost on me. Like I genuinely believe that every teacher has the best interests of children at heart. Like I do believe that. And so when somebody strongly holds views, you know, whether it's, you know, I really support silent corridors because I think it's the right thing for my school or someone else says, you know, this is awful um, for, you know, X, Y, Z reasons. I always kind of have that belief that they're coming from a really good place. And so like, I always feel like I respect the views of um teachers in on twitter um but you know i i feel like for me it's really ironic that you know whilst there's a huge debate on behavior and what the right way to kind of manage behavior is in a school i kind of find it ironic that sometimes teachers themselves don't behave on twitter when you know discussing behavior of pupils and you know that's something that's kind of not lost on me and i do sometimes wonder you know do the pupils of some of the teachers who, you know, can kind of descend to what I would describe as abuse on Twitter. Do their people see this? Do their schools know? Like, you know, something I really wonder. And, you know, I'd love to do a show on it one day. Like, you know, are there any teachers who have ever, you know, maybe been held accountable for what they post on Twitter in their actual schools? Because I think that's also a topic or a conversation that sometimes needs to be had. But, you know, ultimately for me, I think, knowing or believing rather that teachers are always coming from a good place when they share their views on behavior management in schools like I I feel like it's always important to consider and so for that reason I will always you know consider and and listen to every teacher's views whatever they may be Um, and you know I really want to thank everybody for having listened today for you know taking time out on Friday night after like I find November so tiring um and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. But, you know, I really want to thank everybody for their contributions today. Tom, Badger, Daniel, Brent, um, you know, thank you all. And thank you to everybody in the audience as well that's been listening. You know, I hope you found this insightful. And um, I will just let you know now as well, my next show, I'm actually really looking forward to it. It's going to be on the 8th of December. I'm interviewing a teacher who has just resigned from a PRU. And if I've ever heard crazy stories and it's got nothing to do with the children by the way it's all um related to just staff and the differences in the kind of staff that sometimes join proves in comparisons to mainstream but she's got some stories that are so unbelievable and i'm really looking forward to interviewing her so you know feel free to tune in feel free to contribute and once again thank you so much to everybody that's listened and i hope you all have a wonderful weekend thank you very much everybody bye You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.